Scripture reading is from Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verses 44 to 53, we'll read this morning. Uh, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So we'll read verses 44 to 53, and then we'll focus uh, especially on the last four verses. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's ask uh, for the Lord's help now as we study his word. Father, we ask that you would bless your word as we consider it now and that by your Holy Spirit you would thrill our hearts with the gospel truth that Jesus Christ, our priest and king, is now ascended and is reigning and interceding for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with uh, Phil as your pastor, perhaps by now you've heard of Ascension Day. Uh, But I guess that many of you before coming here, didn't know what that was. And maybe some of you are sitting there right now and still don't know what that is. Uh, But just as Christ, 40 days after his ascension, Acts chapter 1 tells us, 40 days after his, his resurrection, ascended into heaven. So there's this long tradition in the Christian church of, of 40 days after Easter, celebrating ascension day as one of the five evangelical or gospel feast days. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, and then Ascension Day, and then actually next Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. Many believe that Ascension Day is actually the oldest of these Christian feast days. And so this past Thursday, just a couple days ago, 40 days after Easter, churches all over the world gathered for special services, a lot like you would probably do on Good Friday, Uh, to celebrate our ascended Lord. Many other churches all over the world uh, gather this morning to celebrate Christ's ascension. I believe both of these are commendable practices. Uh, But if they are, that leaves us with a few questions. One, why have I never heard of Ascension Day? Uh, and, And why have so many churches forgotten this practice? And two, why should I care about Ascension Day? Why should I care that Jesus ascended into heaven? That's what I'd like to do this morning is answer that second question. Why should I care about Ascension Day? And I'll leave the first question for you to ask Phil when he gets back. 
because I think that's something he's given a lot of thought to, uh, why so many Christians don't care about uh, our Lord's ascension. The second question is, is one that I've given a lot of thought to, the question of why the ascension matters. And the short answer is this. If you're a note taker, this is sort of the big idea this morning. Christ's ascension gives heavenly help to his helpless people. And I'd like to consider this here from Luke 24, which we just read under these three points. First, it grants us a heavenly helper. That's the Holy Spirit. Second, it gives us a heavenly advocate, Christ, our great high priest. And third, it guarantees our heavenly destination. So it grants us a heavenly helper, it gives us a heavenly advocate, and it guarantees our heavenly destination. And my hope is that as we leave here this morning, our response to the ascended Lord might look just a little bit like the disciples in verses 52 and 53 here. That we would worship with great joy. That we would bless God continually because his son is seated at his right hand. We'll see that we have every reason for this to be our response. The first of those reasons is that Christ's ascension grants us the Holy Spirit as our heavenly helper. Do you notice the tall task that Jesus gives them in verse 47? He says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he tells them in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. The implication is that as his witnesses, they're the ones who are to proclaim these things to all nations. That's a big job for 11 people. Yet in verse 49, Christ doesn't leave his disciples without help. He tells them that he's going to send the promise of the Father upon them that they might be clothed with power from on high. Now, who's the promise of the Father? It's the Holy Spirit. Christ is going to send him to provide heavenly help to these, these poor, helpless disciples. And as the passage goes on, I think it highlights their poor, helpless position by placing them in the village of Bethany. It's from Bethany that Christ blesses. It's from Bethany that Christ departs. And it's from Bethany that Christ leaves them with the promise of heavenly help. Now, why does Luke include this? Luke's gospel is the only one that includes the ascension. Luke's gospel is the only one that ends in Bethany. And so what's the significance of Bethany in the gospels? Perhaps you remember the first time it comes up is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He does this in Bethany. Later, Jesus visits the home of a man named Simon, who happens to be a leper in Bethany, where a feast is held for him, for Jesus, presumably with other lepers there. And it's there that Jesus is anointed by Mary with ointment. And then now here in Luke 24, Jesus ascends to the Father from Bethany. And he blesses his disciples. Bethany was just two miles outside Jerusalem. It was one of the nearest villages to the city. And its name means poor house. House of the poor. House of misery. Many believe that the village of Bethany was the location of a poor house where lepers and the poor and the sick were cared for outside of the city. So this makes sense of why Jesus was dining with lepers at Simon's house in Bethany and when Jesus was anointed there, why so many people were so upset that the money for that ointment wasn't used to help the poor. 
So Jesus responds, the poor will always be among you. So this village, Bethany, has a reputation and a name that seemed to imply it was a place where the poor gathered, the lepers. It's the location where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The name Lazarus, which means one whom God helps. God certainly does help Lazarus when Christ raises him from the dead. But the reason that I point all this out is because the name Bethany, house of misery, house of the poor, the the raising of a dead man whose name means helped by God, and the presence of lepers and the poor at Christ's anointing seem to suggest that maybe Luke's point in telling us that this is where Jesus ascends and blesses his people is in some way reflective of Jesus' own mission as a mission to the poor. Luke's gospel, after all, begins in chapter 1 with Mary's song about God in Christ filling the hungry and exalting those of humble estate. Now, Jesus himself is born into poverty. We know this because Mary and Joseph offering two turtle doves in Luke 2 is the allowance made in Leviticus for those who couldn't afford a lamb. Jesus is born into poverty to exalt those who are poor. When his ministry begins in Luke 4, he goes into the temple and he reads Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty to the captive, the oppressed. Just after that, Luke's version of the Beatitudes begins with the abbreviated statement, blessed are the poor rather than the poor in spirit. Blessed are the hungry. And then the corresponding woes, woe to the rich, woe to those who are full. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is found eating with the poor. Jesus is found cleansing lepers. And Luke alone includes the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where in the afterlife, their fortunes are reversed. And the poor man is exalted. So I think when Luke tells us that Jesus ascends and lifts his hands to bless at the place called house of the poor, house of misery, he intends for us to recall that Jesus' ministry was marked as one that brought good news to the poor. Now this doesn't mean that everyone who's poor gets saved. While Jesus really did minister to the poor, the poor and the rich are are also categories, pictures, Jesus came to outcasts. Jesus came to the lowly who didn't have anything to offer. Jesus came to save prostitutes. He came to save Gentiles. He came to save tax collectors. Jesus came to save people like you and me, people who don't have any business gathering here to worship him and and calling on his name in prayer. And so it's significant that Jesus gives this full and final heavenly blessing from the place called house of the poor, the the place where lepers dwelt, because truly Jesus came into the world to help those who were poor and needy. Christ came to give help to Lazarus, the one whom God has helped, and now he gives help to all of us as he ascends into heaven and sends the promised helper, the Holy Spirit. He came ministering to the poor, ministering to those who need help, and then his earthly ministry concludes with him lifting his hands in blessing and sending the heavenly helper. The location is important. The lifting of hands is important. Jesus wants to help those who are in need. 
And just as we were in need when Jesus found us in our sin, so we are still desperately in need of his help. When Jesus was leaving his disciples to ascend into heaven, they were desperately in need of his help. How are we going to fulfill this mission that Jesus just gave us? To proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to every nation beginning at Jerusalem. That's a tall task. How are we going to do this by ourselves, they might have been wondering. But verse 49, you'll be clothed with power from on high. Jesus told them in John 14, just days before his crucifixion, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. John 15, when the helper comes, whom I send from the Father, the spirit of truth, then you will bear witness about me. John 16, he says, it's to your advantage that I go, for if I don't go, then the helper will not come. Over and over, Jesus tells them, I want to send you a helper. I want to send you a helper. It's to your advantage. It's for your good. I won't leave you as orphans. I will continue to help you as long as you are in need like Lazarus, the one whom God helps. I'll continue to help you. So here, receive the Holy Spirit. Here, receive my blessing, my benediction as I lift my hands. I want to bless you and help you. And so in Christ's ascension, the first way that he helps his helpless people is by granting them the heavenly helper so that he's not absent from them even for a moment. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, as you make disciples of all nations, I will be with you until the end of the age. Luke 24, right here, I'll clothe you with power from on high. The Holy Spirit empowers for mission. The Holy Spirit gives boldness. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Ephesians 4 says that as Christ ascended, that the reason he ascended was that he might give gifts to his church. Because we are poor and needy people. We're desperate for his help. And so Ephesians 4 says that he gives apostles and he gives prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints and to build up the body to accomplish his mission. He gives gifts by his spirit. And so the ascension is portrayed in Ephesians 4 as an example of what would happen in ancient times after battle. The victor would march through his city and on the way to the the temple in his city with all the spoils from battle, he would throw the spoils to his people, to his adoring crowd as they watched him go through the city sharing with them the fruits of victory. Likewise, as Christ ascends to his heavenly temple, one of the first things that he does is pour out his spirit to share with his people the spoils from war. He wants to help us because we need his help. And so he gives his mission-empowering, gift-imparting Holy Spirit as a means of aid. Yet, sending the Holy Spirit is not the only way that Christ helps us. He also continues to help us by pleading our cause before the Father as our heavenly advocate. That's our second point, the second reason why the ascension matters. It gives us a heavenly advocate. This gets at Christ's present priestly role. Often we think of Jesus' ministry as a priest just in terms of his sacrifice on the cross. 
But the Bible says that he also continues to intercede as our priestly advocate before the Father, even right now, pleading our cause in heaven. This is what priests do. They intercede for their people. We see this priestly focus in Jesus' ascension right here in verse 50. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Twice Luke mentions this blessing and the similarity to Leviticus 9 is unmistakable. Leviticus chapter 9 says, Aaron, the high priest, after making sin offering, lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. Jesus, the high priest, is signaling that the sacrifice has been made and it is for our blessing. Jesus came to turn away God's wrath and to mediate blessing. He came to take away what we deserve because of the curse and give us an inheritance of eternal blessing. And so it's appropriate that Jesus' ministry here on earth concludes with this pronouncement of blessing. He's the one who lives to bless. And he continues to bless us even now from heaven. Twice Luke tells us he blessed them. He blessed them. This is what Jesus is doing for us right now. He's interceding at the Father's right hand so that instead of receiving the curse of judgment that we deserve, we receive his gracious blessing. He's our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. 1 John 2, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation of our sins, who takes away the wrath of God. Jesus is still our helper, our advocate before the Father, and we need this. For when we've sinned against God for the thousandth time, and his, our sin yet again demands his justice, Jesus steps in to the presence of the Father and says, Father, don't be angry with them. You've already directed your anger at me. Don't be angry with him. Don't be angry with her. Their sins are pardoned. And before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. This is what Jesus is doing in the presence of his Father. And he's not just doing this when we sin against him and need his forgiveness. Christ is doing this when we feel weak. Christ is doing this when the trials and difficulties of life just seem to keep piling up. and We don't know what we're going to do. Christ is praying for us. He's interceding for us. Christ today and tomorrow and forever is at the Father's right hand praying that God would give you the grace that you need. This is what our high priest, our heavenly advocate does in the presence of his Father. We might receive the grace that we need. And so what are we to do with this? This knowledge that Jesus is at the Father's right hand as our advocate. Jesus is pleading our cause. That Jesus lifts his hands to bless and takes away God's curse, but rather mediates blessing. What, what does this heavenly help mean for you? Well, obviously the first way that you should respond is to believe. 
Believe that in Christ you have assurance of pardon. The greatest insult that you can give your heavenly advocate as those on whose behalf he enters the Father's presence is to doubt that your sins have been pardoned. To doubt that your high priest has adequately made his case before the Father that no more payment is required. Micah 7 says that your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. And so as those who believe this promise of the gospel, you leave them there. You honor the sign that Christ has posted, which reads, no fishing allowed. You don't go down and and try to bring up your sins and feel guilty about them like that's going to make your heavenly father any more pleased with you. You don't wonder if God really has granted pardon when the accuser tempts you to despair and tells you of guilt within. No. Upward you look and see him there who made an end to all your sin. You don't trust in anything else but the 100% success rate of your heavenly advocate who has shredded the record of debt that stood against you and thrown it into the bottom of the sea, never again to rise. Christ, your great high priest, grants you free pardon with the Father. He mediates blessing instead of judgment, blessing through forgiveness, blessing through interceding in prayer, and through bringing you behind the curtain to give you free access to his Father even now. And so that you might one day be brought home to your heavenly destination. That's our third point, the third way that Christ gives help in his ascension is by guaranteeing our heavenly destination. He grants us a heavenly helper. He becomes for us a heavenly advocate. And he guarantees our heavenly destination. Luke 24, verse 51. Jesus was carried up into heaven. Luke tells us in Acts, he was carried up on a cloud. Children, just like when you, uh, you're sitting outside and you watch an airplane go up into the sky. And behind that airplane, you see this this cloudy train running behind it, following it right where it's going. So Christ leaves for us a line, a pathway going with him to where he is going. One church father said that Christ's ascension makes a pathway for us so that in due time he might take us to be with him. Christ's ascension, another church father said, is our elevation where we penetrate the heights of heaven in Christ. If you like a marine analogy, he's our anchor. Only this anchor is not cast down into the sea, but it's hurled up into heaven, firmly planted there, assuring us that we too will be with him there. Jesus sends us a heavenly helper. He pleads our cause in heaven. And now he makes a pathway for us to heaven. And there's no other way there. We need his help and Christ continues to provide it. Jesus, in his human nature, his real human body, enters into heaven. To the presence of the Father. 
so that in our humanity we might one day enter the Father's presence too. J.I. Packer says that the ascension is Christ's restoring of our humanity to where it belongs. We now have our own flesh in heaven. Christ's body in heaven is not just some immaterial soul that floated up on a cloud. It's his resurrected human body. It's no longer on earth. It's no longer in the grave. It's in heaven. And so when Packer says that the ascension of Christ's resurrected human body is the restoring of our humanity, he means now human flesh can stand again in God's presence. Jesus took on our our flesh so that our bodies could be restored and might one day stand again in God's presence where they have not been able to stand since Eden. This is the gospel. And I'm afraid the reason so many Christians don't care about the ascension is that they have an incomplete or insufficient view of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's Christ taking on our flesh in the incarnation, living a perfect life of obedience on our behalf, dying the death that we should have died on Good Friday, rising on Easter Sunday, and then taking our flesh into the presence of his Father on Ascension Day 40 days later, before then pouring out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost to enable us to believe this promise of the gospel. And so I think there might be some real wisdom in the church's long tradition of celebrating each of these five evangelical gospel events in Christ's earthly ministry. We don't want to neglect the fact that Christ's human body has now gone into God's presence. The fact that it does is the guarantee that Christ our head will take us there to be with him too. It assures us that one day we will be with him again. John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. And I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Jesus is preparing a literal place for us, specially reserved for his people, where there are many, many Many rooms, room enough for the billions of elect throughout the ages where we will be with him. He continues to help us. He sends his Holy Spirit. He takes our human flesh into the presence of the Father. He intercedes at the right hand of God and right now is preparing a place for us. And equipping us by his Spirit to invite many, many more to join us in our heavenly home. See, these aren't just three disconnected reasons why the ascension matters, but each of them builds logically on the other. Jesus gives his spirit to make disciples. And then Jesus intercedes before the Father as the ground for those disciples to be brought in, and then he prepares a place for us and all of those disciples who are brought into his family. Colossians 3 says that Christ's ascension means we set our minds not on earthly things, but on things that are above. And part of what setting our minds on things above means is that we are to have ever before us the mission of Christ's church to proclaim this gospel to every nation. The good news of Christ's priestly intercession 
The good news that the promise of the Father, the power from on high, enables us to proclaim that he makes a way to be brought in to God's presence. And so one of the primary applications of Christ's ascension then is that we do what Luke 24 verse 47 says and proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. This is why Jesus ascended, to be given authority over every nation so that people from every nation might hear the gospel and respond. I think that's what we find in Acts chapter 1, which we read before we prayed. Remember, we said that Jesus ascended on a cloud, Acts 1.9. Why do you think Luke tells us that Jesus ascends on a cloud? Why couldn't he have left that out? Is there any significance to the fact that his ascension is on the clouds? I believe this is a clear reference back to Daniel chapter 7, which we also read just a while ago. Remember Daniel 7 said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And many see this passage as prophesying about Christ's final return. But I think that we're in good company when we side with John Calvin who says this, Daniel 7, ought to be explained without a doubt as the ascension of Jesus Christ for then he commenced his reign as we see in numberless passages of scripture and then he ascended on the clouds to the ancient of days, Acts chapter 1. And so Christ's ascension in Luke 24 and Christ's ascension in Acts 1 is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. That the Ancient of Days would give his son a kingdom. That every nation, people, and language should serve him. And so it's not coincidental that in both Luke 24 and Acts 1, when we read of the ascension, it's in the context of Christ's instructions about bringing the gospel to every nation. Why? Because it is the ascension that guarantees the gospel's triumph in every nation. He will have dominion because the Father has given it to him. And so we can go forth in confidence, not wondering timidly if maybe somebody will respond when we share the gospel with them, if maybe somebody will respond when we send missionaries overseas. No, we believe with all assurance that they will because Christ now reigns and the nations have been given to him. Having made intercession, he's taken his place at the Father's right hand where he reigns over every nation and the first thing that the reigning priest king did was pour out his Holy Spirit, the power from on high to enable us to make the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of our Lord. So that every tribe, every tongue, every nation might also be guaranteed a place, a room in that place he's now preparing for us. And until then, he's interceding for us. And part of that intercession is for the church's mission in this world. That we would be faithful in carrying out the mission that he's given us to glorify Christ by making disciples. 
A mission whose success is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit with us and is guaranteed by the reality of Christ's heavenly reign. It's all connected. It all comes back to the gospel. The ascension is in many ways the climax of the gospel and the ascension is the ground for our preaching of the gospel. It's a missionary event. So we don't neglect it. But we recognize that the ascension of Christ into heaven is every bit as important as every other part of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the continuation of the incarnation for all eternity as it reminds us that Christ still wears our human flesh before the Father. It's the culmination of Good Friday where our great high priest stands between us and God as our advocate, as our intercessor. It's the climax of the resurrection as Jesus' body is not just lifted from the grave but exalted into heaven. And it's the reason that Pentecost can happen. So don't neglect your ascended reigning and now interceding heavenly priest and king by leaving this out of the gospel. And so as we come to a close, I want to make sure that we understand what this means for us and how this applies to us. The point of this sermon is not just you should, ac- you should celebrate Ascension Day. Uh, if that were the point, uh, then we could all go home. The point is that we should all celebrate the ascension of Jesus Christ every day and we should live in light of it in every area of our lives. And so as we close, let me submit to you these these five things that I think the ascension teaches us. One, that humiliation is the surest route to exaltation. We're going to hear from Philippians 2 as we close our service how Christ was brought low in order to be exalted. Jesus says it in Luke 24 that he had to suffer in order to enter into glory. And he leaves for us that same pattern. We don't seek the the one apart from the other. We don't seek the glory without the suffering. We don't seek the exaltation without the humiliation. But fellowship with Christ, even in his suffering, that we might also share in his glory. Two, because we are united to the one who's seated in the heavens, we therefore set our minds on what is above, not on earthly things. One pastor said, as a compass points north, so the believer's entire disposition should point itself toward the things of heaven. Where, number three, all things have been placed under Christ's feet. Therefore, no part of your life is outside of his authority. There's not one square inch of your life, as the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, over which Jesus Christ does not cry mine. All things have been placed under his feet. And four, this also means that no part of creation is outside of his authority and so that all of his enemies, those who do Christ's people harm, those who murder innocent Christians overseas for no other reason but that they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, those enemies of Christ's, Psalm 110, 1 Corinthians 15 says, will be destroyed. And so you don't have to live in fear that the enemy wins. 
But Christ's ascension gives us hope that all of his enemies will be defeated either in judgment or through conversion. And so we participate with the ascended king in his mission with full assurance that it will be accomplished and those peoples, nations, and languages that are given him in Daniel 7 will worship him in Revelation 7 free from all persecution. And then five as we go and participate with Christ in his mission, we remember that he's praying for us. And with that knowledge, we keep our eyes firmly fixed on his marching orders. We keep our eyes firmly fixed on things above, even if it leads to our humiliation. Because we know that it's ultimately unto our exaltation and Christ's magnification. The ascension isn't irrelevant for us, but in fact dictates every part of our lives. And so the early church celebrated this cosmic event for good reason. Because in it, Christ provides the heavenly help that we so desperately need. Let's go to Christ and thank him for it. Father, we thank you that you have said to your son, Sit at my right hand. That from heaven he reigns and from heaven he intercedes. We thank you that he's given us his spirit and from heaven is building his church. And now, Lord, we ask that you would give us minds to comprehend the importance of Christ's work in its entirety. And that you would help us to respond to it appropriately, setting our minds on things above where Christ our head is now seated in glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.